Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Today we have Dr David Mammon with us talking about light. David is a well-renowned astrophotographer, author and public speaker. His images of the night sky taken in the cage of the Anglo-Australian telescope have received acclaim from all around the world. But this was not always his trajectory. Starting his career in chemistry, then moving to Australia, David transitioned not just from poor weather to sunshine, but to a new scientific endeavour. Please welcome the author and co-author of 11 books, the recipient of the Jackson Gwilt Medal, and for his invention, improvement and development of astronomical instrumentation, David Malan, the man who coloured the stars. Hi, Marnie. Good to see you. (laughs) Thanks, David. Thanks for coming along. And, um, well, let's just start. How did you colour the stars and what does that mean? Well, it started a long way back for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned my chemistry background, Mm. but that soon morphed into using microscopes. Right. And then I immediately became knowledgeable about light because with microscopes you you have to uh, play with the light in really interesting ways. Sure. And then I became interested in vision and how you see things. And, of course, in those days when I was doing this, Photography was the, was the only way to record any data. Right. And that, of course, involves light as well. So mm-hmm. I became familiar with all those things and fascinated by the phenomenon of light. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, you know, uh, we wouldn't be here if there wasn't light. No, yeah. Uh, it's astonishing to think that uh, all our food is grown by uh, chlorophyll absorbing infrared light and ultraviolet light and, mm-hmm. and, uh, across the planet. That's mm-hmm. what we live on. And, and and so with you mentioning the microscope work that you did, what what was it that you were actually looking for, and was it medical or what? what no, were I was working for a company that uh, was a big chemical company in the north of England, mm-hmm. and they made amongst many other things pigments and dye stuffs. Okay, where color is important, so color, yeah, is, is important in all of that stuff. And um, they started a, a physical section in the chemistry department. And I started to run that, firstly doing uh, microscopy, mm. looking at the crystals and deciding what kind of crystals they were, crystallography and so on. Okay. And then we started using X- X-ray diffraction to study the crystals and finally electron microscopy as well. Uh, so they're all, they're all using beams of energy of one, one sort or another to mm. understand the physical world. And to what purpose? What, what, why did you need to know that for a chemical and dye oh, company? It's, yeah. mm. it, well, pigments especially, mm. uh, the particle size is a very important thing and the particle size range is important as well. Okay. And some, some pigments, thalassine in blue, for instance, which is still very widely used, mm. has some very interesting properties. If you look at it under a microscope and put a piece of Polaroid in there, like your Polaroid spectacles, right. mm. it, it lights up in all kinds of colours. It's essentially blue. But there are little shafts of red and green light as well. Mm-hmm. And pigment makers can use that for property if you grow needle-shaped crystals. 
and spray them onto a car finish, for instance, okay. with, with mm. part, partly with aluminium paint underneath so it reflects. Mm-hmm. That light's polarised by the by the surface of the of the car. Most mm. reflective surfaces are polarised light, and so you get this strange colour shift as you look across the body of right. the car. It's so you very get su- a shimmering effect. It's or... not, not mm. shimmering. It's, mm. it's, it's when you look in this angle, it's green, and here it's a bit redder. Mm-hmm. It's very subtle, mm-hmm. but it, it really makes some cars look fantastic. Yes. Or make them expensive, yeah, I imagine, but, as well. Yes, yeah, but, but understanding them. the crystal nature mm. uh, of, the, uh, of, of the pigments themselves mm. allowed that kind of development to happen. I wasn't involved in it. I was interested in it, so mm. I, know, I know about it. But mm. that sort of thing, the way that light can be used for all kinds of ways in interesting physical ways, mm. reveals a good deal about the natural world that we don't really understand. Right. And... And so you also mentioned in that that you were interested in photography. So which came first, the microscopy or the photography? Oh, the photography came mm. first. Mm. Uh, um, go back about to 1957, 58 it was. I met a French girl in England. Mm. She, was, she was au pair. <laughs> mm-hmm. I fell over her in the ice rink <laughs> and picked her up. That's and, one way to pick her up. No, no, she fell over me. She, she, uh, she was just charming. Uh, she was French au pair. And uh, after a, a few months of, of seeing her, she invited me to go to Paris to meet her parents. And I'd never been overseas before, you know, a mm. raw Lancashire lad out there. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and somebody, mm. I, I, I asked somebody if I could borrow a camera because I'm going to somewhere interesting. So I, I went to uh, went to Paris with a, a big roll film camera, a big mm. box camera, I think it was, mm. something primitive anyway. I began photographing around the streets of Paris and really warming to this area, a very beautiful city because mm. it's not like the, the industrial north of England where I came from, Paris. No. Paris is a city of light mm. uh, and you understand why that is mm. when you're there. So I, and then I started processing these things in my own in the dark room at work. I didn't have a dark room of my own then um, and the boss found me doing uh-huh. it. <laughs> And slapped my wrists. <laughs> and then said, and then show said, me your photos. No, yeah. then he said, <laughs> no, then he said, look, there's a, an old microscope in the corner. It was a bench-top microscope, horizontal one. Mm. Uh, I want some crystals photographed. Will you photograph them for oh. us? Mm-hmm. And I did, and it was successful. And so yeah. gradually I started to do more and more of this. And eventually I was running a department that did nothing else, right. essentially. Nothing else but uh, microscopy, crystallography, photography mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. around the company. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. But um, at the time, I didn't have a doctorate. Right. And so it came as a bit of a shock to me when I was told in about 1964 or so, by the, which time I was well married and had three kids mm. and you know, building a career, that be, be, I'd never become head of lab. Because? Which really meant mm. a, a bigger carpet mm. and a bigger desk and more salary because mm. I didn't have a PhD. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I was quite shocked at this because I've been with the company since I was 15 and years old. And you were proving old. your skills anyway. Oh, yes, that's right. Yep. I was working, working mm. it seems to be working well and people mm. appreciated what I was doing. So I started looking around in the UK for a job that offered similar challenges because that's what they were. Uh, but there was nothing like it in, the, in Britain, mm. Britain at that time. Mm. And I was kind of giving up. And then I saw a little advert in the back pages of Nature, I think it was, uh, advertising for a, uh, a photographic scientist for the Anglo-Australian Observatory, okay. which I hadn't heard of. Right. But they also said, uh, we need somebody experienced in, um, in, in laboratory skills. Well, perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, hmm. Now, by this time, I'd married an Australian. Oh, dear. Things so coming, coming, coming to Sydney <laughs> wasn't quite the wrench it might no, have been. No, Because uh, she was coming home and uh, I was going to somewhere new. Yes. Uh, so I joined the Anglo-Australian Observatory in 1975. Mm-hmm. And uh, life took off from there. That was a really a big change, of course, because mm. I didn't know that much about astronomy then. 
but I was surrounded by mentors. The place was full of postdocs, all wanted to do well with this brand new mm. sparkling telescope in Australia. So this was when in the in the history of the Anglo-Australian telescope? It was about six months after it opened. Okay, so early 70s. It was very early 70s, mm. and the place was trying to find its feet, basically. Mm. The commissioning work was still going on, for instance, when I got there. Okay. Um, but it was a perfect place for me. Was, yeah. As I say, it was surrounded by mentors. Mentors were really important. Uh, people encouraged you and led me through the intricacies of using the telescope mm. and, and what, what astronomy was about. So it sounds like the world was your oyster. Well, it was because the observatory was new, uh, uh, quite new at that time, uh, surrounded by mentors, as I said, uh, and uh, all of them wanted some work done photographically. And so I was challenged straight away because astronomical photography, as you might imagine, is quite unlike microscopical pho- mm. photography. From the, the micro to the, the macro? Pr- yeah, no, no. Well. <laughs> micro to a cosmic, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so things were different, um, but I learnt, I learnt the ropes and soon began to make some discoveries mm. uh, by using photographic processes I'd used in chemistry for microscopy. They, they turned out to be even better when I applied them to the photographs that were being taken on a So on this big is telescope. where you coloured the stars? That's a bit, just a bit later. Okay. So what were the processes that you started to in- implement? Uh, working with glass negatives, mm-hmm. which, which I'd taken myself, or which were taken to the UK Schmidt, which is a, a photographic telescope nearby, mm. I was able to extract much fainter images than anybody had done before because being a microscopist, I understood uh. the three-dimensional nature of the photographic layer, the photographic mm-hmm. emulsion. Mm-hmm. And all the faint images are located at the top of that emulsion and all the noise is scat- scattered throughout. Okay. And by copying those with using a diffuse light source, I won't go into the details, but you can copy it, uh, but just get the top layer and then uh, increase the contrast of that. And that mm-hmm. amplifies the image because mm-hmm. astronomers are always looking for fainter and fainter images. Yes. Yeah. So that it very quickly led to the discovery of um, uh, interesting features of galaxies that hadn't been seen before. Mm-hmm. So there's two new kinds of galaxies, uh, a galaxy with, uh, with shells around them, uh, and galaxies with shells and structures inside, because there's, there's another process called unsharp masking I also made. I didn't invent it, but I, I employed it. So you can rummage around inside the black parts of deep images of galaxies mm. and reveal very subtle features in there as well. Okay. So just so I get this in my mind, you're saying that light, like sound, can have different frequencies and different, and, you, and what you what your techniques were doing were actually filtering out certain volumes or certain light-coloured spectrums? or Not quite, no. no. Um, what I was doing was using photographic materials mm. um, in, a, in a way that hadn't been done before to extract faint detail from mm. the photograph, processed photographic emulsion. But you had a, a, a bombardment of different types of light that were being picked up in different areas yes, in, yes. And, and you were able to filter out those. Indeed. Uh, mm. uh, well, uh, uh, an important part of astronomy a long time before I arrived was to take photographs on black and white plates but using colour filters. Mm. So you had the green or red or blue or infrared light of any particular object. You could analyse that separately. Mm-hmm. Um, so astronomers were well aware of splitting up light into its various colours. Okay. But none of them had used those, that data, those data, that pl- those plates, mm. for making colour pictures. And I devised a way of doing that as well. And they were the first, really, the first true colour pictures uh, made in astronomy. So how did you do that? Well, photographic film doesn't work well on a, in a mm-hmm. big telescope, even if it's a, a huge telescope, lots of light comes in. But uh, it comes in very slowly, it's very feeble, very faint light. And photographic films in those days, and indeed still now, um, are d- designed for snapshot exposures. That's where the market is. Yeah. Uh, so if you t- start taking long exposures, 
the colour balance starts to wander off. The red layer is faster than the green layer or the blue layer. And so the colour balance and gets are they distorted. equal? Do, the, do colours they, operate the same way? They or? should be equal. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you do a snapshot, mm. each of the three layers is designed to be sensitive, the same sense, it has the same sensitivity. Mm-hmm. But when the exposures are long, um, the blue layer often doesn't work very well at all. Mm-hmm. And the red, wear, red layer works quite well. So you get very distorted colours. And you can't correct those. At yeah. least you couldn't correct them in pre-digital days. Mm-hmm. So by using three black and white plates taken in separate colours, it's possible to reconstruct a true colour picture of the, of the universe around us. Uh, and, of course, you don't see these colours. The colours are invisible to the eye. Uh, so how do you get them the right colour? Mm. Well, there's a lot of physics and chemistry in that, but astronomers knew what the colours of the stars were. And so using that information, already, it already existed in the astronomical community, you can reconstruct the colours to be realistic, what you would see if your eye was extremely sensitive to faint light. And I know your your images were renowned because they were true colour they, and, and they, to, they gave us specific information. Yes, they were, de- yeah. they were, they were true colour, but they're also very deep. In other words, they, they showed very faint things. Because they were taken with astronomical plates designed to capture faint detail, those colour pictures made from those plates uh, also showed faint things that hadn't been seen in colour before. Wow. So you were getting a, an absolute wealth of Yeah, it was, ju- it was just fantastic at that mm. time. And, mm. of course, uh, alongside the Anglo-Australian telescope, there was a UK Schmidt telescope, which was a purely photographic instrument. And they were turning out lots and lots of plates in three different colours. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to use those to make uh, colour pictures of, of their pictures too. Uh, UK Schmidt has a wide field of view, sees mm. great chunks of sky. Yeah. The Anglo-Australian telescope looks at one degree of sky, a tiny part of it. So they complemented each other very well, those, uh-huh. those sets of pictures. Different sets of images. Yeah. Mm. So right at the beginning I said that um, you spent some time sitting in a cage taking images. What does that mean? What... Well, to any normal person, it means, <laughs> it means I'm in some kind of zoo. <laughs> Tell us about a normal night that you were at the AAT. <laughs> well, the prime focus cage that you just mentioned is not a cage at all. It's really a steel tube. So it's not tu- for zoo animals. No. It's not for zoo animals. No. <laughs> Just astronomers. It's a tube at the end of the telescope where the light from the mirror is brought to a focus. It's called a prime focus. Uh, so you're sitting actually inside the camera. The telescope is a huge thing, so you can sit three point nine meters. Three point nine meter mirror. Mm. Uh, the prime focus cage itself is about a metre and a half in diameter, so you can get into it quite comfortably. Mm-hmm. And between, between your knees there, there's a, a, a rectangular camera back. It's uh, 20, 250 millimetre square, 10 inches square. It was built in America, that bit. Um, uh, that's where you put the photographic plate during the night um, and just wait for the photons to come in. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very dark up there. You're working in complete darkness and very lonely. There's no, you can't have any mates in there. It's really quite mm. tidy. Uh, and the only communication you have is with a night assistant yes. who's sitting in a nice, warm, warm. nice, warm control <laughs> with room. With a cup of tea. Downstairs, yeah, yeah. cup of tea in your hand, yes, yes. Yeah. Having, a gr- having a great time uh, while you're up there shivering. Because you're, you're sitting in a, in a cage that's largely aluminium, and aluminium's a, a great conductor of heat. So when you uh, touch it in the, in, in the winter... It's very cold, and yeah. this camera is between your legs, so you can imagine how uncomfortable it was. To have... Sounds fantastic, David. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I, look, it, it, it was fantastic. I mean, all those are minor discomforts, but if I turned around and looked out of the dome, mm. I could see the sky. Yeah. And when you're there for hours and hours, you get very well dark adapted. Yes. Uh, so you can see faint things that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. And that was fascinating too, just looking at the stars during the night. I can imagine there must be nights that 
really stick out in your memory. Yes, some mm. fantastic nights when the mm. when the image quality is good, when the seeing, when the images are really tiny, really sharp images, the air isn't trembling at all, absolutely stationary, and you know you've got a good plate. You get mm. really excited about this because mm. only one in ten is a really brilliant plate, typically. And is that one in ten plates per night, or how many were you taking? In well, a, some yeah. some nights you might get a whole night where the seeing is good, mm-hmm. and then you get four or five nights where the seeing is indifferent, yeah. where the air is trembling a bit. Yeah. So they all get mixed up. So unfortunately, even though you might want to take a matching set of plates under identical seeing, you never can. Right. And I was going to ask you: Is there any particular night that stood out in your mind, or any? Not really. Any practical jokes? No, practical jokes. She did mention practical jokes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, there was one that really terrified me. Um, In the dark? uh, In the dark, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been up up there. When the telescope was first commissioned in 1974 and 5, the commissioning wasn't finished. It couldn't be. It's too much to do. Uh, And there was a problem with airflow in the dome. Right. Because the idea in uh, the big dome like that at night, it's a huge dome, by the mm, way, mm. it has to be ventilated, and so there are fans sucking air into the dome uh, from the outside, so the dome and the inside and outside temperature of the air are identi- is identical. That improves the seeing, the steadiness of the image a lot. The image, OK. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, they, but it hadn't quite worked how, 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 this, how the air was circulating, and you could only do this at night. OK. So um, one night I was sitting there in the prime focus cage quietly listening to a bit of music over the intercom, sort of drifting. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, right? I've been up since 6 o'clock that evening. and <laughs> You know, you're kind of drifting away a bit. And suddenly there's a slight scraping alongside the side, <laughs> side of the prime focus cage. Now, I'm 50 metres above the floor, right? Yes. Nobody can get there, nobody around at all. No. Uh, but this suddenly this shape rose from the edge of the prime <laughs> focus cage, gradually rising, a dome-shaped shape about a metre across, <laughs> and on it was painted a face. <laughs> and then and oh. then I heard a guffaw from down below on the dome floor. And um, uh, Patrick Wallace and Peter Gillingham, uh, great colleagues, great scientists. They were before that moment. Before that moment. <laughs> they were uh, using a, par- a, a helium-filled balloon uh, to explore the, the way the air was flowing around the dome. Uh, they didn't tell me of this, of course, beforehand, <laughs> but they intended to scare me because they painted this the face. this face on it. <laughs> so that I let out a shriek and a good deal of expletives. Um, uh, and then I said, these people were laughing down below, so I knew it was a joke, but mm. it was a fairly unpleasant experience. Yeah. I think that's the thing about the nighttime environment. You can... Well, you mentioned dark adaption too, and once you're adapted, you feel you can feel quite comfortable and you get used to the surrounds and you feel... You, you know, there, people sometimes explain that feeling of being in the nighttime environment is very comforting, that it's like a warm blanket, you know, that it, it encroaches around you and, com- and covers you, basically. Yes. But you, you get used to that, and then if something completely changes out of, out of your knowing, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's the embrace of the night. Mm, yes. Uh, and it's made nice. even more nice. uh, pleasant in the prime focus cage because um, I like music. Mm. Uh, and it's a great place to listen to music without any distractions because the, each, each exposure is at least half an hour, sometimes 90 minutes, and mm. you're sitting there doing absolutely nothing apart from monitoring a few little little lights and dials and things. So absorbing music in that way is a really rewarding experience with the stars behind you mm. and, a, and a fantastic Quite machine mm. at your control, really, uh, 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 with a big, tel- a big mirror collecting light to go onto the photographic plate. Mm. Um. Just picking up again on the dark adaption, what does that mean? 
Uh, it means that we are we, we evolved on this planet when there was no artificial light apart from campfires. Um, and we were, uh, like all primitive creatures, we were subject to the attacks of animals around the place. Animals like my cat that's uh, not, purring no, right no, now. No, that's, that's not a cat. <laughs> it's a cushion. Sorry. Mandu's <laughs> part of the furniture here. Mandu, yeah. yes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, David. Yeah. Now, cats, have, cats can dark that very well. You see, they've got slits in their eyes. Yes. They, they become big round things when it's dark in the night mm -hmm. because it lets more light in. Right. The human eye does something similar, mm -hmm. but the retina itself changes as well. Uh, the retina is the thing at the back of the eye, the stuff at the back of the eye, which records the image, rather like a photographic film, but, okay. it's, but it's in your mm -hmm. head. And it changes by switching off the red, green and blue sensors that we see colour with mm. and boosting up the other kinds of sensors that are only sensitive to, to, uh, to black and white, but right. much, much more sensitive. Mm -hmm. So the sensitivity of your eye changes and so does the uh, angle over which you're sensitive. Right. So it's, some, it's like when you sometimes can, you look at the sky and you're looking straight ahead, but you can't yeah. see it, but you can see it out of the periphery. You can see it out of the edge of your, yeah. of your yeah. eye. That's, mm. that's the important part I'm getting to. Mm. This is why it's such a, a lifesaver, because you're looking straight ahead, but you're very well aware of what's happening around the sides. Now, that has two effects. Mm -hmm. One is that when you stand beneath the stars and this happens, it's quite mysterious. Can't you half, half realising that you're seeing a much bigger field of yes. view? Yeah. Or you're aware of a much mm -hmm. bigger field of view. And of course, it's better to see the tiger from uh, the side, from, the yeah, side, yeah. Mm, from a further distance, rather than see mm. its colour. Mm. Yes, mm. so that's mm. a, it's, a, it's a security mechanism. Fantastic. But it gives you this lovely, mysterious feeling when you're under a really dark sky. Unfortunately, many of us don't get to see really dark skies. We all live in cities or suburbs or street lighting around the place. There's a lot of all that, that stuff going on. But when you're in a place where it's dark, like that, where the Anglo-Australian Telescope is at Siding Spring near Coonabarabran, it really is dark. Mm. And so you can see from horizon to horizon, you can see the stars. And there's, there look to be millions of them. Mm. Mostly through the year in Australia, there's some of the Milky Way there. That's full of structure. You never see that when there are street lights no. around. No. Uh, the Magellanic Clouds, the nearest galaxies to the Milky Way. It's an inspirational part of the natural world. It's half our life. You know, we spend half, half, our our half of our natural environment. Mm, mm, mm. And so we never see it uh, in, in the cities and uh, suburbs, mm. which is most unfortunate. So that sort of brings me to the question, you know, what is it that we're going to lose if we continue to light, to, to light up our night skies or to lose our nighttime environment? What, not, from an astrophotographer's perspective, is there ways that we can... Re can we reduce that impact on photography? Is well, it's not, it's not mm. so much the photography, it's just mm. that we've lost a, a part of our lives. Mm. Our ancestors used to sit around a campfire. Now, mm. campfires are red light. It doesn't affect your night vision. Mm. So you can watch the campfire and look at the stars yes. as well. Yeah. Mm. Now we look at the telly, which is blue light mostly, or your iPod or your, your mm. computer screen. Mm -hmm. It's blue light, and we don't see that. Even when we step outside, there are street lights everywhere, and their light shines up into the sky that shines into your eyes, you don't see the sky. So we've lost half of our experience of the natural world. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. I, I well, couldn't agree more. And the, yeah. the other issue about lights is, of course, they, they mess up your circadian rhythm too. Mm. Um, uh, if, you, if, if you go and observe at the AAT for a week, for instance, you, you're jet-lagged when you've finished Yes. Right, because it's just like you change your, it's like being on shift work yes. exactly the same as shift mm, work because you're working overnight shift workers are affected by this too so you get home and all you want to do is sleep during the day and, and work at night so your circadian rhythm is is upset mm -hmm. and it's upset because we've, i've changed changed my day around 
light does the same thing. Mm. Um, if you get lots of bright light on you in the day, as you might do if you're living in, say, Britain, and then you get an aeroplane to Australia... Bright light in Britain? Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> from the telly, I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, from, uh, bright light uh, affect, affects you in, in this way, so it, it destroys your circadian rhythm. Well, the other thing, though, of course, it's so, so wasteful. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, most of the light, a lot of the street lighting goes upwards... It mm. just illuminates the sky. It's doing nothing useful. If proper shading was put over the lights and it went where it was needed, uh, it would be uh, you'd be able to use this, uh, less power to to do it, and the, and it would be altogether much more efficient. And mm. astronomers wouldn't complain. <laughs> well, it's not just astronomers. No, no, though, it's not. Yeah, it, yeah. It's become much more widely appreciated, mm. especially for wildlife. Wildlife gets upset by this too, and mm. uh, of course they have no control over it. They can't go inside and shut the curtains. That's right. Mm. So Margaret Atwood said that there's a good use, a bad use, and a silly use that they never saw for most technologies. And going back again to the colouring the stars, what would you foresee we might have good use for in, of, of light in the future? We've talked about some of the evils, but could, is there anything in particular with photography, say, that, you know, are there techniques that might be able to filter out light or you... You talked about digital photography and how you could adjust that. I know, for example, I'm jumping around a little bit, but when I've seen an aurora with my natural eye, it's not as strong as some of the images I see of of images taken of mm. the aurora. So what sort of adaptations have happened within the camera with light? What, what techniques are we able to use to in, in, improve our knowledge of the night sky. Well, let me start out by saying mm. the eye and the camera, although they work on the same principles, mm. they work in a different way as well. Uh, uh, a camera records with film or, or nowadays digital, it can add up light over a long period of time. Your eye, your eye can't do that. It takes a series of t- uh, snaps, snapshots, but at once every tenth of a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at your eye carefully, uh, day or night, you find it's twitching around in your, in your eyeball. Okay. So because the image gets saturated and so it moves it around to different parts of the, of, the, um, of, the, of, the, of the scene that you're looking at. It's called cicades. Um, it means twitching. Mm-hmm. The eye twitches. Uh, films don't do that and uh, cameras don't do that. Uh, so we don't quite see like a camera. We see, we see it rather differently, different kind of physiology. Mm. Um, but we are messed about by light that comes in from outside that we don't want to see. Mm. That's especially true in astronomy, of course. Mm. But also at night, um, if you're walking around in the suburbs, you don't want bright light shining on you all the time. You need, need to be able to see where you're going. But you don't need um, blue LEDs, for instance, which are now no. replacing a lot of sodium lamps because those lights are bad for your circadian, circadian rhythm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and let's go right back. You, you mentioned also that photography started with plates how was that capturing light what was the process that it actually caught the light well the, mm. it's a photographic plate we're talking about mm. which is a glass plate with gelatin on it and in that gelatin are little crystals of silver halide and they're light sensitive mm-hmm. if you keep them in the dark and then expose them in a camera they'll make a photographic negative for you if you if you process them mm-hmm. so that's one way of capturing light as mm-hmm. i mentioned you can do it in three colors or more colors if you like and photographic plates are also sensitive to X-rays uh, and to uh, uh, ultraviolet light. Uh, so there's a whole range so depending of on radiation, that, yeah. mm-hmm. all of which is light in a sense, all of it, electromagnetic radiation, all of it. Mm. Uh, and they all affect photographic plates. Uh, so you can record wavelengths that you can't see, mm-hmm. which is quite nice stuff to do as well. 
And now jumping back to the future or back to now, you've been judging the David Malin Awards, which is a series of different um, categories Mm. for how many years? It's been going for 15 years, I think. Mm -hmm. We typically have five categories of astronomical pictures. I, I love this. I, I really enjoy mm. doing it. It's quite a challenge because we get three or four hundred a year and, so, and I get to judge them. So it's quite a challenge. It takes me quite a while to get it right. No, there is no right, of course. It's my opinion in the <laughs> end. Well, <laughs> but, that's right, yes. But to get it right to me. Yeah. Uh, but that challenges uh, amateur photographers to do nice things because when I present the awards, I will discuss the pictures from the aesthetic point of view mm. and the scientific point of view. The aesthetics are important because you don't normally think of aesthetics in the sky, mm. but you... It, Composing a picture of just the stars or stars in the foreground, it takes a good eye and imagination to do it because you, when you start the photograph, you can't see, you can't see everything it, that you photograph. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. might see a bright star or two, so you have to imagine it. So that's a big challenge for astronomical uh, images. It's mm-hmm. easier nowadays when you're using digital cameras, much more sensitive than film ever was, mm-hmm. and so you can take relatively short exposures, a minute or two, as opposed to an hour or two, um, to do your stuff. Even so... It requires a good deal of skill to get the stars sharp, to get the colours right, to get something in the foreground or background if you're taking wide-angle mm, pictures, mm. or if you're tracking a, a, an object in the sky with a telescope to make it track properly. Uh, there's dynamic range issues to consider, electronic noise issues in digital mm. detection and so on. Quite a lot of things to juggle, uh, but getting the aesthetics right is the first thing I look for. Uh, and then uh, if the picture says something, if it's a, a strong image that reveals something that's interesting, um, strong to the eye, uh, technically excellent, mm. uh, it's very difficult to get te- technology right, so it's quite a challenge to do. And uh, imagination. Right. Why did you take this picture? Why? It's great. Why yeah. did you take it? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Is there an image that stands out to you Yes, there's a, there's a few. Mm. Uh, the winner last year was a picture of... Uh, uh, a crater lake in Tasmania, uh, absolutely stunning, mm. absolutely stunning image. It, it had stars in it, taken by moonlight. Uh, this guy had walked up this quite distant part of Tasmania and spent mm. the night there just taking this picture. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, uh, There's quite a few like that I can recall. Not all of them are include landscapes. Quite a few of the pictures that I, I have awarded over the years are real astronomical photographs of galaxies and nebulae and, and so on. Mm. So that reminds me of the one of the books that you've authored, uh, Ancient Light, and makes me question how how ancient is the light that we're getting <laughs> from the stars? Well, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of the most distant thing I've ever photographed. Of course, you're photographing distant things all the time that mm. you don't actually know about. Little blobs on the photograph are probably some distant quasar that's <laughs> halfway across the universe, but you, you're not interested in that. You're interested in something in the foreground. Um I can't say how far back I've looked in time, mm. but it's a good few billion years. It's amazing. It is, yeah, yes. When you really consider that. And we can all see it yes. to some degree. Yes, yeah. well, you, if you can take a photograph of it, mm. you can share it. Mm. And people are, are mind-blown when you tell them it's halfway across the universe, that thing. It's, and the light's been travelling half a billion mm. years. Well, yeah. even our, in our own solar system, you consider that it was eight minutes from the sun? That yes, the, the, the eight light minutes from the, from the sun, sun takes. A few seconds from yeah. the moon. Yeah. So uh, the sun could explode and we, we wouldn't know for eight minutes, basically. Well, that'd be yeah. a relief, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do then? <laughs> oh, well, go to eat your chocolate bar or Parasol, something. Parasol, Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So I like to ask people who have an affiliation with light, if you had the opportunity to speak to a decision maker or a policy person 
about light, light pollution, what what would you encourage them? What would you urge them to understand? Two things. Mm. Uh, one is that any light that goes upwards from the street or wherever is wasted. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's wasting energy. Therefore, it's contributing to climate change. Um, so mm. saving 30% of the energy that's involved in, in, in organising streetlights uh, would be a very good thing to do. The community would benefit from that. Yes, immediately. Uh, immediately. Mm. Um, the other thing is that uh, get the colour of the of the lights of the of the lights right. Uh, don't use white LEDs, for instance, or any colours that are blue. Sodium lamps, even though they're ugly, are perfect, perfectly mm. good for for night viewing. But I understand sodium lights are, are more expensive to run than LEDs, for instance. But you can get LEDs that are a warm colour. Put yes. the warm colours mm. in there, uh, and uh, we'll respond much better to them. We won't be affected by uh, changes to our circadian rhythm and so on. Easy. It's easy. A simple thing. It is easy. And, it's, and it saves money. Yes. It? Now, yeah. now, the side issue, of course, is the astronomers. They like this too. But that's not why we're doing it now. It's, it's because light, light pollution, which is what it is, has become a much wider issue than just affecting astronomy. Mm. It, it's affecting all of us. Mm. We need to do something to fix it. Well, as someone pointed out uh, last year, I ran a conference called Riding the Light Wave of Technology. And one of the speakers there pointed out that 150 years ago, this didn't exist. It's, you, you might doubt climate change or global warming or you know, droughts, etc., being caused by human impact. But there's no doubt that light is impacting humans and our planet and is being used wastefully, basically. Absolutely. Mm. You only have to uh, look at the city of Sydney, for instance, mm. which is a very bright place. Like just thinking about... Uh, Sydney Observatory, mm. which was opened in 1857, and it was very, very successful on top of Observatory Hill there, mm. uh, until 1890, I think it was, when street lights were introduced into city. They were feeble gas lights, I think, very f- feeble mm. things, but they prevented observing at telescopes, or at least yes. proper observing. Mm. And so eventually they had to move a telescope to somewhere in uh, just outside Epping, on the other side of Epping. Pennant well, Hills. Well, Pennant Hills, mm. yes, that's right. Mm. That's where it was. Mm. Uh, nobody knows about it now. No. Uh, but it was a serious problem for the observatory because travelling out there in those days from the city was mm. take half a day. Yeah. It wasn't easy. Mm. Uh, so it immediately affected the way that, that astronomy was done in Sydney Observatory. Mm. Uh, and all the observatories around Australia, the uh, state observatory in those times, were affected by it. Because At all some in, stage they've all been affected, haven't they? They were all in, the, all in the cities, mm. yes, that's mm. right. And that's why it was moved out to Siding Spring eventually. Yes. I, it, but the irony is that Sydney Observatory was actually the first place to have a street light. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> but you weren't there then, <laughs> I, I wasn't there. I was there about 150 years later. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, I do have Andrew Jacob, who's the um, astronomy curator of Sydney Observatory, doing a podcast with me exactly on that topic in a few weeks. Well, that's fantastic. Mm. It is an interesting mm. issue. Interesting. But people, look, you can't blame the general public for not thinking about this because it, it, it starts off as being quite a technical notion. Mm. Uh, but in fact, it's basically, it does affect your basic everyday life mm. and it affects the, as I say, climate change because more carbon dioxide is needed to generate the power that powers these, these things. Mm. Well, only this morning I was listening to ABC Radio and they were saying, you know, we've got this energy crisis. And yes. isn't that ironic that we've yes. got this energy efficient country? In fact, we've got solar and wind and coal mm. and gas and yeah. everything, and yet we've got this crisis. And how is it possible? That's a different question from what I'm, I'm thinking. But 
half of it could be eradicated if we just yeah. turned off half the street lights. But it isn't a, yeah. it isn't a side issue. You know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not a raving greenie or anything like no. that. It's just common sense to realise that if you could point the light where you need it, mm. uh, shade it from the sky, uh, use less energy, mm. therefore more efficient. Exactly. It's just straightforward. Mm. So just to finish up, David, I would like to know the time that you remember being in the night sky environment that is most precious to you. Well, any good night on Siding Spring when it's not cold is a very good <laughs> night. But one night in 1989, uh, I think it was in March, uh, Saturday night, I rocked up there Saturday to observe the weekend. Uh, and uh, I wasn't on the first two or three nights. I was preparing to do stuff. And as it got dark, the sky was red. Well, it's sunset, you know, that's mm. what you expect. But it got to midnight and it was, it, still was, it was still red, mm. quite a vivid red. Mm-hmm. And I was quite puzzled by this. You don't normally see aurora at Siding Spring. It's, it's too far, too far from the poles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but next day I heard on the radio that there was a, a huge solar storm. Mm. And it's that solar storm mm. uh, that, first of all, blitzed the American electrical Grid. Oh, right. It was that mm. storm that did, especially mm. in Canada. Mm. Uh, and the only effect that in Australia it had was to make the bright sky, the night sky red. Mm. But it was, I've got photographs of it. It was stunning and Fantastic. weird. Because yeah. you don't expect a Rory as, as far, as close to the equator as Siding Spring is. No. Although I was talking to an elderly gentleman a few weeks ago and he said that when he was a boy, he used to see Aurora. And he he posed me the question, which I've don't know the answer to, but it's a good one, is it because we've started to light pollute our cities that that very low glow of an aurora on the south horizon, yep, yep. we're not seeing it. It's just being eradicated. That might be, yeah. It might mm. be light pollution issue mm. because mm. the number of aurora per year changes on, on an 11-year cycle as the sun gets more and more excited and then calms down a bit. It's the sun's... Uh, it's stuff, plasma from the sun, basically, bumping into our atmosphere that makes it glow and produces the aurora. Mm. Um, and that occurs on an 11-year cycle. Sometimes it's, during the 11 years it va- varies from, I don't know, many aurora a night to perhaps three or four. Mm. Uh, you might have, been, might have been lucky. The sun might have been more active in that time. But over, over mm. the long term, I don't think the aurora have changed significantly. No. So I don't, it could well be streetlights that have affected him. Mm. And again, it might also just be that he's not getting outside as much as he did as a child or <laughs> none of us are outside well, as much course, at night. Well, of course, and your days. vision isn't yeah. as good either. Mm. You know, mm. your, um, your eye got some uh, transparent material in it. And as you get older, it gradually clouds. Mm. Uh, I can see floaters in my eye, for instance, which I didn't have when I was a teenager. Mm. Mm. Uh, they don't seriously affect my vision, but they do scatter light a bit. I and mean, mm. if you're looking for threshold light, to the very best you can see, that does affect your eye, your your sensitivity too. All these things take place and, and make a difference in the way we see the world, really. Yes, mm. and so does experience, Marnie. Yes. And having experienced all this stuff from uh, from being a microscopist to, a, to an astronomer, mm. uh, I've seen light in all its dimensions and all its wavelengths. Mm. Uh, it's been a fantastic career. Sounds like it. <laughs> Well, on that note, we might call it a day, but thank you very much for your time, David. It's been very enlightening. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we'll sign off to the rest of the world, but ask for your questions and reviews. If you'd like to send us an email, do so at podcast at darkskytraveller.com.au or tweet or Instagram us at darkskyoz. 
For those who are interested in those fantastic photos that David was talking about, please go to the cwas.org.au website and you can check out the winners for the David Malin Awards. In the meantime, jump on board on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and leave us a review. Thanks very much. Lights out.